It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 14th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British and Irish governments are to hold special meetings today. Both cabinets will discuss a draft withdrawal agreement allowing the UK to leave the European Union next March. It's two and a half years since the Brexit referendum and it's down to the wire now or the end game, as Theresa May put it this week. So what is going on? Well, officials for the UK and the European Union agreed a text on Monday evening which will allow for a UK-wide backstop overcoming they hope, the biggest obstacle of all, avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland. But while the officials have come to an agreement, it's nowhere near certain that politicians will do the same. Paddy Malo is the PRO of Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. He's watching this, I'm sure, closer than most. And good morning to you, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, what do you believe uh, to be the proposal in all of this, uh, uh, apart from whether will be accepted or not? Because we're already hearing from prominent Brexit Adheres, the DUP and indeed some members of the Labour Party that this will not wash. Yeah, well, it, funny enough, Michael, in the day that's in it, it's a tax deadline day. So uh, as a professional accountant, I have my focus on other things as well. Uh, but that said, look, it, it, it was always going to be compromise. And, uh, you know, you're listening to those that have ideology as the only thing that drives them. That's the DUP and some members of the Conservative Party. They were... If Theresa Ray May had got everything that they asked for, they still wouldn't be happy. So you've got to look at the moderate ground and see, can, can they move? And it was interesting this morning that papers like the Daily Express, which has never done the Irish any favours in over 150 years, um, saying it's the best of what we can expect. Uh, so hopefully the pragmatism will come out and reality and let's get on with business. But the problem is that the squaring of circles was always going to be a difficult situation and you know, um, there is going to be give and take on both sides. And I think Europe, the one thing I will say about Europe is it, it remained firm with uh, Ireland. Uh, we never buckled. We never had to do a solo run on the situation. Uh, I think that's a testament to Enda Kenny and uh, subsequently Leo Varadkar in briefing and making sure that Michel Barnier understood the Irish side of things and recognised that it was the European, correct for Europe. But, you know, there's a long way to go. I sincerely hope that, uh, that May can deliver this, but I have my doubts. 
Yeah, it's a big challenge, as is or has always been the case. And when you have so many different views and everybody needs to be seen coming out of this happy scene, not to have lost whether they've won or not, I suppose the best you can hope for is a monumental fudge of sorts where everybody actually loses to some degree. Well, I think that when you started treating, treating negotiations, and I'm thinking back 90 years when I say it, nearly 100 years now when I say that one, you, you immediately accept that you're not getting everything you're going, to, you're going in looking for. And I think people like Rhys Moggs and Boris Johnson have to realise that if you negotiate, you've already conceded that you're going to have to concede something. Uh, and this idea, well, we didn't get everything we looked for. Well, you were never going to get everything you looked for. You know, that, that was, that's, that's not negotiations. That, that's, that's called something else. That's called bullying. Um, and they've got to recognise that. So, yes, everyone is going to lose. Everyone is going to have to uh, save face. The end of the day, from the Irish point of view, the critical thing is that there's no return to the hard border. Those of us in County Louth know more than anybody else what the consequence of a return to a hard border means. We don't want to see it in any shape or form. You know, the the level of smuggling and low-level crime that would immediately uh, reoccur would would put this area back a long way. Right, uh, and we're just working off leaks. Very few people very are little, yeah. seeing the text of uh, this document. Uh, it seems to be a, a very big document, uh, but what is being proposed, it seems, is a UK-wide backstop with special provisions for Northern Ireland. What do you take that to mean? I think that means that there may well be a mechanism to allow Great Britain to leave uh, the Customs Union at some stage in the future, but that Northern Ireland would have to have special arrangements attached to it so that it it wouldn't leave on the same terms. Now, I think what the DUP and others have got to recognise, the island of Ireland is already a different animal than Great Britain uh, in terms of the electricity market, in terms of uh, certain food requirements, definitely in terms of animal husbandry. Um, there are different regulations in Northern Ireland as distinct from um, Great Britain. And we saw the necessity for that when the foot and mouth disease broke out in 2002, that the all-Ireland approach was the only way that we could protect it. So, you know, that's what we're looking at. So we're looking at it's sort of like a compromise, which is saying that, yes, Britain, and, you know, from the UK point of mm. view, they're saying, well, we'll stay in the customs union because of Northern Ireland, but we reserve the right to leave. And what, Britain, what Europe yeah. is saying is Britain can leave, but you're not taking Northern Ireland with you. So that's the two-tier backstop that we were talking about, the backstop to the, the backstop. backstop. That's yeah. what we were talking about up to now, but uh, they're just not calling it a, a second backstop. No, you see, that, that's, that's the problem. If you start putting labels on things... Mm you immediately give the opposition a target to hit. And I think what Theresa May is going to have to do is you literally walk in with a 500-page document and say, you tell me where you can do better than that. And on a 500-page document and it's thrown at you with five minutes' notice to read it, you're not going to get it. And um, you're then faced with a situation of, you vote for this, or God knows what we're getting. And I think Theresa May was working on the basis of bringing them up to the precipice and saying, if you want to jump you're going to commit suicide. The alternative is to run with this and see if we can go, see how far we can get with it. And I think she's causing, playing a game of bluff. And I, I, to be honest with you, I don't think that she had ever any alternative to do than this to do. Mm. Um, and what about Leo Vratker? Uh, I mean, is there a possibility uh, that he's left uh, enough room in this so that Northern Ireland could opt out and that we'd have that doomsday scenario? No, I think 
I think it's it's not Varadkar. I think it's it's Europe. I think Michel Barnier understands the whole attitude. When he was in Dundalk last April, he impressed everybody who listened to him, both in public meetings and I, I listened to him in a private meeting in, in Newry afterwards. The man got the whole situation in respect of it. And he was clear that Europe was 100% behind uh, Northern, uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland business. Now, I've got to admit that mm. everybody in that room, with one exception, was anti-Brexit. So that, you know, it was easy enough for him to say that. But it, there was sometimes when you meet a politician, you come away saying, yeah, well, he said the right things, but mm. does he mean it? Barnier got it, and he does mean it. Uh, and that's a testament to okay, but it's probably people know what the, the Irish government have done. Irish have mm. been good Europeans for forty years, and that's why we're getting the credit for it now. But there's possibly people. I'm sure there's probably people north of the border who are wondering if Paddy Malone gets it. Uh, I mean, they be, could be saying to you, "Look, uh, what are you suggesting here? Uh, is it that there could be a, a scenario someday in the future whereby uh, Northern Ireland would effectively be in the European Union and Great Britain would not?" That will be left up to the, the British to decide if they want to move away further from Europe. Not a possibility, though, uh, is the response. I don't think it's a possibility. It's a, it's a possibility, but only that possibility would only occur if Westminster decided to do it. It wouldn't be anything that Brussels or Dublin decided mm, to do. But that so, possibility needs to be taken out of this uh, agreement. I mean, that is going to be the argument. Uh, I don't think you'll argue with that. No, I, I think that's the argument that mm. the DUP would put up, that yeah. they, they, they cannot accept that they're sitting in this you know, departure lounge and that they don't know if they're ever going to be pushed out the door. Uh, but, you know, the, the only way that they can ensure that is that the constitution of the UK is recognised, and it is recognised, so that the only people who can make that decision is the Westminster government. Nobody else can. Mm. So it's the DUP, if they want to remain unionists, then, you know, it's Westminster that they have to look to for support. Dublin or Europe is not making a land grab, and that's the point that has to be got over and over again. Dublin and Europe are simply trying to make a bad situation less bad. Uh, it looks unlikely, doesn't it, that it will get the support of government, whatever about the prospect of cabinet support for this? Yeah, I, th- I think listening to the DUP this morning, um, the answer was no. And, and the problem was that if you listen to the 10 DUP ministers or the d- d- uh, deputies for the last yeah, two years... Effectively, what they were saying was, we're not prepared to compromise. Well, mm. you know, then how can you negotiate if you're not going to move? You know, yeah. d- 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 those people who were in what's called the tunnel in Brussels debating were wasting the time as far as the DUP was concerned, because unless they came out with exactly what was in the manifesto the Czech, uh, and the Chequers plan, unless mm. they came out with exactly that, and even the Chequers plan, I think the DUP would have said no to. But it, 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 the answer was no. So you were... The only hope is that the DUP will go back to their constituents and listen to them saying the reality of the situation is what's important. Let's deal with the real-life situation on the ground. As long as the constitutional position of Northern Ireland is guaranteed, let's see what we can do. That's the only hope. Okay, but if there isn't support for this from the British government as it's currently constructed, what then? Uh... I think then you're looking at the Labour Party tabling a vote of confidence in Theresa May. You're looking at the government falling. You're looking at a general election, probably this side of the um, of Christmas. Uh, you are looking, based on the polls, you are looking at a diff- back to the same, with very little change in the actual numbers. Mm. Um, and you were possibly looking at a minority Labour government, who 
you know, frustratingly enough, Corbyn is also committed to Brexit in a, in a, in a roundabout. So therefore, I think that it's unstable would be the kindest word that could be applied to British politics at the moment. <coughs> and that is the problem, that there's, you know, 49.5% of the people voted to remain and they are not being represented in the Parliament by either of the major parties. Mm. And the Liberal Democrats are going nowhere. And do you think another referendum is a possibility? I think at the end of the day, I think that's the only way it can be done. And I think at that stage then, um, I would sincerely hope that people are properly informed. Uh, I think the last time out, Cameron did, you know, called, made a gamble, it, he lost. But he lost because his own party and pro-Brexit, pro-Remainers did not go out and canvass. I talked to people who were living in London at the mm-hmm. time. I talked to a couple of TDs who went over to London to look at the Irish foot and were shocked at the apathy and the lack of work that had been put into it. But I also think that when Cameron was going around the 28 European countries asking for support and asking for a bit of fudge, for whatever better way of putting it, on certain of the four things that they were arguing about, they got, he got a very cold reception. And I think if you were to ask any government now in any of the European parliaments, are you sorry you didn't listen to Cameron a bit more? I think the answer would be a resounding yes, particularly when you look at the vote. For, you know, 49% to 51 you know, run it on a Friday when people, students would have been home from college and you probably would have won it. Mm. Yeah, and that's the frustrating thing about yeah, it. Yeah, run it next week and you most certainly would, I think, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would think so. I would think the British people at this stage now realise mm. that it's not a clear-cut situation. And I think they're beginning to, the penny's beginning to drop. I mean, I'm listening to British industries coming out, Nissan and, and Sunderland, major British industries coming out now and saying, we can't work with this. The, the university saying, we can't work with this. Our research questions, the whole funding of Horizon 2020 and all of that, all being put into jeopardy. I, I don't think, well, I know it wasn't thought through. And particularly, nobody paid any attention to Northern Ireland and what was going to happen with that. Either side, the Remainer or the Brexiters. You know, All right, I, yeah. Well, I, I suppose uh, whenever you mention Brexit, you can expect an ironic conversation and our conversation does seem ironic given that we're being told uh, that there's uh, agreement on a draft uh, withdrawal proposal. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure anybody is terribly confident uh, that that will be implemented uh, and time will tell. We certainly know more by the end of the day today, Paddy. But look, we have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for Thanks joining us okay. here on the programme this morning. Paddy Below is uh, Dundalk Chamber of Commerce's uh, PRO. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, protests are taking place uh, across uh, the country today over the way uh, people are treated uh, when uh, they make a sexual assault complaint. This uh, follows uh, the treatment of a 17-year-old complainant in uh, the Central Criminal Court last week uh, when it was suggested that the type of underwear she was wearing was part of the reason that uh, there was a defendant in court. It's an issue that was raised in the Dáil yesterday by Solidarity TD Ruth Coppinger who suggested that the government should make massive legal changes to end what she called the routine victim blaming that goes on in Irish courts in sexual assault cases. And she quoted the defence barrister who said to the jury last week, does the evidence outrule the possibility that she, the alleged victim, was attracted to the defendant and was open to meeting someone and being with someone? You have to look at the 
way she was dressed. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. Uh, now, uh, this is being described as one of uh, these rape myths, uh, but uh, it should be said uh, that uh, the details of uh, this case are not known to us, but we do know that the jury did find the defendant not guilty. We're joined by Emma Coffey, who's a sitting counsellor for Fianna Fáil and also a practising solicitor and principal with Emma Coffey Solicitors. Uh, good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. And we do hear uh, quite often, in fact, uh, that people who take complaints of uh, this sort feel as though they're the defendant when they go into court? Yes, they feel they're being uh, victimised or or assaulted twice, quite frankly. And I've heard that uh, a a number of times by victims who have gone through the process. Uh, And and just to to make it clear, nobody has a dress who's a wit what they do. That is not an invite to rape. Nobody should be raped. Nobody wants to be raped. And it is, it, quite frankly, uh, the, the, these type of statements that you hear in court, I, I wasn't surprised um, to hear them. It's not the first time I've heard them. Mm. It certainly won't be the last time. But what I am heartened about is that the, it, 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 more in recent times, there seems to be a concentration on reporting of such matters and that it is deemed to be not acceptable that such matters should be taken into account in these in these particular crimes. You mean not publicly acceptable? Yes. But uh, ac- ac- acceptable to the courts, it would seem. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because we can't comment on the full details of mm. it. It, has been, it was a matter that was raised in court. It was a matter that was put to the jury. We, we don't know... Uh, the, mm. But as you say, you've, you, you've heard similar statements, whether it's yes. short skirts in yes. another case, let's say a hypothetical case. Uh, I mean, it seems that uh, a barrister can go into court and suggest uh, that she was asking for it. Well, what I would say to you is, yes, it's suggested and it's up to the state to counteract that argument. But ultimately, this is why I have been on, I was on your radio uh, mm. show, Michael, a number of, of weeks ago where I was uh, advocating and supporting the criminal justice bill, which is proposed by Fianna Fáil to support victims of sexual and gender violence and legal advice and legal supports within the court system. Uh, and, and as I stated at that time, it's not going to address all the imbalances, but it is a start. And I think if victims were actually legally represented and legally advised, I do think this type of assertions, because it's, it's, it's assertions that are put forward that not necessarily a victim's representative, there is no victim's representative, can stand up and object to it mm. and object to those assertions. And I think that is where the glaring, um, the glaring um, downfall is in respect of it, that yes, the, the accused has the right to cross-examine and to object to certain matters put forward. But the victim is, is, is almost a spectator. Mm. And often it is not the victim's view or the victim's reputation or the victim's perspective uh, that has been... It, it's, never, it's never represented in a, in a criminal court. It is the crime and whether the, crime, whether the evidence meets the criminal uh, level of whether a person is guilty or not. And that is, and, and that unfortunately is the law. It is not, it is not full of emotion. Mm. But in these aspects and in these trials, it is highly emotive. I mean, I have a daughter. I certainly don't, wouldn't want my 17-year-old daughter uh, underwear to be put out in public display in any form. Mm. Um, and and, and ha- never mind in a fact of a, yeah. of a courtroom. 
Well, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I think it should go without saying that her underwear or the length of her skirt or whatever yeah. it is uh, does not justify any action, whether it's no, how someone looks at you or talks to you not. or uh, in uh, the situation that we're talking about now yeah. uh, where it could transpire to be a sexual assault. Uh, it, it, and that seems to be why it's said in court that it justifies uh, an assault or it gives some understanding to why uh, the accused, not in this case, but in general terms, uh, might act in that way. Yes, and what I'm saying is, is that there is a, in the criminal justice system, there is a, a, a severe lack uh, and, and non, non-representation for the victim in, criminal, in the criminal justice system. There is no representation for a victim. And until that person has a legal voice, they will never, it will always be a case of where these assertions of the length of the skirt, what they, who they were with, how they, how they acted that night, you know, what they took, be it, be it alcohol or otherwise, mm. will always be put to the forefront in a court case. And unless a victim is absolutely represented from a legal voice, and I'm talking about a legal voice in a legal room, and those protections given to the victim, that it is always going to be an imbalance. And I agree with Ruth Carpenter that there should be urgent reform. And, and you know, sometimes political stunts don't warrant merit. But I believe yet what she done yesterday warranted merit because it's actually highlighting the, the situation where victims are absolutely victimised uh, when they walk into a courtroom. And there is a, always more potential than not that those victims will be victimised again. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Emma Coffey is a Fianna Fáil councillor in Louth and a practising solicitor principal with Emma Coffey Solicitors. Now, it's Wednesday morning, meaning the local newspapers are in your shops and available to you. We have them in front of us here this morning as well and Marie Kearns uh, joins us to tell us what's on the front pages and we begin in Meath with The Chronicle. That's right, Michael. And Busted is the headline of the Mead Chronicle today, which details the raids on the five homes in Mead, which were searched yesterday as part of a major operation by the Criminal Assets Bureau, following on the acti- focusing on the activities of an organised crime gang operating in the county, who are all members of the one family, according to the paper. Inside the Chronicle, Anne Casey writes about the plight of parents, Orla and Declan Gormley, in trying to secure a secondary school place for their daughter Emma because a planned autism unit at St Peter's College in Dunboyne which was sanctioned by the National Council for Special Education has still not materialised. The good news though Michael is that the community are really rallying behind Orla and other parents of children with autism to have the facility open next year with an online petition already receiving 1,500 signatures. Okay. All right, focus in uh, Dundalk then on events uh, several months away, about four months a- away right. in fact. Yeah. We're just after Halloween, Christmas hasn't yeah. happened but the focus is on St Patrick's Day and we actually covered this story on the show on Monday. Michael, it's because of the uncertainty I suppose surrounding the parade in Dundalk after the decision which was announced on Monday that the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce is pulling out of organising the event because basically it's been left to them to do with no help. 
help for the past couple of years. The story has moved on a little since then with Margaret Roger reporting in the Argus that last ditch efforts are being made to stop the parade being called off that the Chief Executive of Loud County Council Joan Martin has said that she will be prepared to host a round table meeting of interested stakeholders. So there is a glimmer of hope there. Okay, anxiety in Drogheda making the front page of yes, the Independent. Yes, many more residents we feared for our lives. That's the lead story of the Drogheda Independent and it's highlighting the terror experienced by the residents in the estate on Sunday night when that car explosion took place. It was the scariest experience of my life, said one resident who, who added, to have a bomb go off at the back of your house and have Gardy banging on your door telling you to get out quick was absolutely terrible. The other story on the front page of the Drogheda Independent, uh, Michael, is a political one. The news that long-serving Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Byrne has decided to bow out of local politics and will not be contesting next year's local elections. Councillor Byrne told the paper it's been an honour to serve the people of Drogheda and District and he will leave the political scene with cherished memories. All right, and that feud in Drogheda, which is as much a national story as it is a local story, also makes for the front page of the leader. That's right, and the leader is detailing the various different events and incidents that occurred over the past couple of days. But the front page also has details about a new cinema for the town. Des Grant is writing that Scotch Hall Shopping Centre has applied to Loud County Council for planning permission to build a five-screen cinema in the upper floor of its existing mall. And if the planning permission gets the go-ahead, it will also include a food area and a wine bar. Very good. All right. Uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie. Interesting stories making the front of uh, the local papers uh, this week. You're welcome to comment on them if you like. And you can do that now because Marie will be back in a, a few minutes' time with some of your comments. Uh, and indeed, if uh, there's something else that you'd like to comment on that you've been hearing this morning, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us, as always, our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, as you've probably been hearing, a, a report published uh, this week suggests uh, that laws uh, that criminalise uh, people who pay for sex instead of uh, those who are in prostitution are a better way to end prostitution and effectively tackle trafficking. This is according to the Immigrant Council of Ireland, which has been working with other agencies uh, across six European countries, Ireland being one of them. Dr. Edward Keegan, Anti-Trafficking Coordinator with the Immigrant Council is on the line with us now and good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, That is actually the situation here, isn't it? And it is uh, the case in Sweden uh, and France. Uh, But what about the other three countries uh, that participated in this study? So in the other three countries, and first of all, thank you for having us on, Michael. Very welcome. Good but morning. in the fir- other three countries, so in Finland and Cyprus, you have what's called a partial ban. And what this does is it criminalizes the purchase of sex from a victim of trafficking or from someone who's procured, so a victim of pimping. But it has to be based on the knowledge of the buyer. So in those cases, what you see is effectively no prosecution. So in Cyprus, we see no prosecutions. In mm. Finland, only a handful, and that would even be exceptional for countries that have adopted that model right. you're talking a very small number whereas in Lithuania you're seeing um, everyone is criminalised effectively but in how the law itself is implemented it is generally the women the sellers who are those targeted by so, so the situation in Lithuania is as it was here before we introduced uh, changes uh, in 2017 
So in Lithuania, it would have been more strict now because the buyers themselves would have been criminalised. Before we introduced changes, the buyers would have been criminalised for on-street soliciting, but not for purchasing sex, say, indoors. Okay. That wouldn't have been, but that is what has changed with our recent change, yes. Uh, But there have been no prosecutions here, or have there been? To date, we are not aware of prosecutions. We know it's a new law. It only came in last year, and it takes time for these kind of laws, particularly this one, to become embedded. And we have certainly been enthused by the reaction of the guards to the law, and we're hoping to see more forceful implementation. But what implementation has there been? I think that's a, a fair question. Is it not given that there have been no convictions? To date, there has been no convictions, to the best of my knowledge, no. And only a handful of uh, people in court? Yes. So to date, but we are hoping now to see that increase. As we say, it's a new law and it does take time. Okay, uh, but uh, the suggestion then from those working in the sex industry here is that it's made a bad situation worse and that uh, the risk of exploitation is great and that there's been an increase in attacks. Oh, we heard this quite a lot and now... When it comes to the sex trade itself, what we know and what is revealed in the report is that it is a violent trade. This was before this law was introduced. And we know from working with partners such as Rahama, who have first-hand experience of working with women in prostitution as well, that there has been definitely an increase in reporting and a lesser focus by the Gardaí on the women themselves. But certainly we are continuously reviewing how the law is being implemented and any um, negative impacts unforeseen to look at how they can be addressed and certainly seeing um, commitment by the guards in that regard to tackle any violence as it does arise and is reported. But if no men are being convicted uh, and it's decriminalised for the women, does it not uh, make prostitution legal in effect? At the moment, it in effect, in terms of how it has been implemented, it doesn't make prostitution legal. But what we do hope to see is that it is implemented more forcefully in the coming months so that it can be seen or that the spirit and what is on the paper of the law is put into practice because that is what is missing at the moment. Mm. So in what you are saying, the law is there. It is still illegal, but we need to see what is on paper put into practice and to ensure that for the women that there is not only decriminalisation but also service provision strategies for exit to make it also realistic that that part of the law can be realised because this law really needs to rest on two pillars where you have one Mm -hmm. about implementation, targeting buyers but also in looking at how you can give more meaningful exit strategies for those in the sex trade. But uh, until such time, is there any deterrent? At the moment, well, the law is in practice or is there. Mm -hmm. It can be implemented the guards you say there has been a handful hopefully that will be seen to be more i think there needs to be more public awareness around the law itself and the legal change because what we've seen formally doing work with those who do purchase sex research in that area is that these type of laws do act as an effective deterrent but as you say it does need to be implemented as well mm. yeah and uh, the fines are, are relatively substantial I suppose 500 a thousand euro uh, it's uh, undoubtedly uh, the damage that it would do to your reputation that uh, should impact uh, on people and deter them away from paying for sex uh, but uh, the idea 
that uh, it's uh, illegal for sex workers to operate in groups, in other words, uh, to form brothels, uh, is, according to sex workers themselves, a reason for women to work alone and putting them more at risk. Is there any merit in that argument? I think when it does come to this, I can understand why the provision around brothel keeping is still in place when we look at the organised crime element within prostitution. But in terms of how that itself is implemented or enforced, we really need to look at to make sure it isn't targeting one or two women working together or that it isn't being used in that regard. There needs to be a consistent policy, so it is not targeting that. All right, and uh, you've obviously uh, first-hand knowledge of the danger that a lot of these women face uh, and uh, when uh, they're trafficked into the country, uh, it really uh, can be an incredible situation. Uh, I suppose, uh, as many of us have seen uh, from reporting over the years, uh, it's a big industry. There's some very serious criminals uh, involved and uh, uh, you would argue that the best way of stopping these gangs, uh, the way the women are, are treated, is uh, to go to the consumer, the men who are buying it. Exactly. So to reduce the demand for it itself, and then as part of that as well, to go after those who are organising it. Because it is, I mean, some studies reveal that within the traders, 10 to 24% are trafficked. We've done studies where one in four buyers are saying they are come across sellers that they would visibly notice as being coerced or underage or that they would suspect to be trafficked. And you have to suspect those probably are lower numbers because there's only those being noticed. Mm. So it really is important to go after that and to criminalise the purchase of sex demand and also go after those organising it is the most effective. Often, often glamorised and described as the oldest profession in the world, uh, but uh, we're talking quite often about young girls uh, who've been forced into this situation and can find no way out of it. Absolutely. You are seeing high levels of that. So when you say 10 to 24% trafficked, that's one in four upwards. And then beyond that, lots of studies, if you look at the situations in which many women will enter prostitution, it often is as girls before they are adults. It is often in coercive nature. It's often positions of vulnerability being abused. And then they are then in the trade. So it really does need to be tackled. And do you think when men go to prostitutes when they pay for sex that they realise the situation that the women, that the girls quite often are in? I do not see that. I know from former research that we have done here that often even irrespective of their knowledge of human trafficking up to the level where some buyers knew the legal name for EU legislation on it, they wouldn't think of that when they go to actually purchase sex, that this isn't something that's almost a willful ignorance when it comes to buying sex. And as we've seen in the case of the show recently on RTE, based on the tragic story of Anna, who was trafficked here into Ireland, you're seeing thousands of men who would have bought her over a period of time and have ignored the situation that she was in, whether willfully or not. Right, and I think that's one of the messages that you're trying to get through in publishing this report, that prostitution in itself is a form of violence against women. Exactly. So prostitution in of itself is an institution that has generally been built on exploitation and a form of violence against women. And in the countries where we are seeing it, so such as Sweden, and even in Ireland, the legislative change that took place was really based on the issue of gender equality. Mm. That is what drove it to recognise prostitution for what it is and to challenge it through trying to realise a more gender equality society. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, we'll leave there for the moment, Edward. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Dr Edward Keegan, the Anti-Trafficking Coordinator for the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots in on Brexit. Jack from Cullen. Once this deal is put on the table, politics will kick in. Sinn Féin won't agree. The loyalists won't agree, etc., etc., etc. They will all play politics. Theresa May is doing her best but can't win, hmm. says Jack. So, what does that mean? How <laughs> will it end up? Well, Seamus Dog thinks that Paddy Malone is absolutely right when he says that politics in Britain is very unstable at the moment. And for that reason, Seamus doesn't think this deal is going to be accepted. He believes that this is going to collapse the government and that the end result will be a general election. Yeah. Yeah, it could uh, be right. Sinead yeah. from Drogheda is also of a similar viewpoint. Yeah. I'd say if the people of Britain had to do it all over again, they would vote to remain. There is too much up in the air and too much at risk. I think there will be uh, another general election yeah. and after that, hopefully, say Sinead, another referendum. Yeah, well, I think this is probably or possibly the poker game that Mrs May is playing at at the moment and she knows uh, that the deal will never be accepted to everyone. You certainly can't please all of uh, the people in any Brexit time mm. but uh, when it comes to this deal I think the poker game is that it's a, a take it or a leave it scenario. This is as good as it gets and you take it or you leave it uh, and the hope is that or the gamble is uh, that they'll decide to take it. Another listener says it all centres now Michael on whether Theresa May has enough backing from within her own party. Mm to see this through. Another listener, Theresa May may have agreed to this uh, proposal, but will she stick by her word? You cannot really trust what she says or does, and we would be very foolish to do so. <laughs> OK, yeah, a lot of confidence uh, there. Uh, and this is now, yeah. Fran, mm. uh, Ireland voted against treaties in the past and we were forced into it. So how can your guest call us good Europeans? There's no democracy in the EU, claims Fran. Mm. Well, we weren't forced uh, in the second run of any of those referendums in terms of how to vote second time round. We just voted differently. We just voted. <laughs> we were convinced of the arguments. Um, who was this? Now, Geraldine phoned in and says, I'd say that the Irish government are feeling very happy this morning, but I suspect that their joy will be short-lived. The DUP are going to block this all the way, Michael. I don't think Theresa May really has anywhere to turn at this stage. She's trying to keep everybody happy but how can you keep people happy when you have to give in order to exit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you know what she means. I think I do, yeah. And I, and I think she could be right. But uh, what have the DUP to achieve? Uh, or what can they gain from it? You know, uh, and again, we're into poker games and gambles. You know, yes. is the devil you know better than the next one? Uh, another listener, Tom, phoned in and says, the bottom line is, Michael, that we have to have a backstop in place. Theresa May is under pressure not to give in in relation to a backstop, but there is no way they can exit the EU without there being a backstop. <laughs> mm. 
So there you go. That's his thoughts on it. Okay. Well, look, thanks uh, for sharing them with us. Uh, we'll come back to some more of those comments in a moment. Uh, but let's uh, go uh, to the streets of Navan and indeed Cross County Meath, uh, where people are leaving their rubbish beside some of uh, the street bins. This is costing Meath County Council a fortune, according uh, to the environmental officer, Bernadine Carey, uh, who has uh, been telling the Meath Chronicle about how people will be prosecuted and fined €150 for a first offence and up to 3000 along with hefty costs if uh, they're caught more than that. And we're joined by Tommy Riley, Fianna Fáil councillor. Good morning to you, Tommy, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, The council seemed to be indicating a a clampdown on this sort of dumping. Uh, Is that something that uh, you'd expect to actually happen? I'd expect it to happen, Michael, but, uh, uh, you know, you need CCTV in a lot of these places. But most of all, my problem with the council is that uh, I had two ladies that walk on the, the ramparts there out at the Callum Bridge, which is a beautiful site, and one day there, they rang me, there was this guy uh, in a big car, six black bags of rubbish, opened up his boot when mm. he saw them. Uh, he closed it down again, so they took the number of the car and drove off and came back, and the six bags of rubbish were behind. They rang me, mm. I rang the environment section. First question was put to me, uh, would they be prepared to go to court? I oh, know, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, that's a turn off for anyone. That law has to change. That, and I, I, I found out where this guy lived. Mm. At the number of his car at the time, found out where, and I went to his house. Mm. And uh, you know, my height is about five foot nothing. He was about six foot six and mm. long dreadlocks. So I told him I'd be going to the barracks if he didn't remove it. So he did remove it. But you know, just going to court, people trying to do good for their area. Uh, the bottle banks there in, in, in Navan is an absolute and utter disgrace there. Mm. On the new road, as I do call it, coming from the shopping centre up for the round heading for Newgrange, heading for Slane, stuff that's left there. And the state of the bottle banks themselves is it, it, it's absolutely disgraceful. Mm. We have a recycling centre. That's where all those things should be. And I've seen people putting stuff in the bins at night, but I couldn't swear if it was household rubbish or something they picked up on the street. And they're not poor people. They're people that has money. Yeah, tell us about the fella who had the six bags of rubbish uh, who uh, left them there. You called to his house. Uh, what, yes, he, what? he didn't live too far away from me. Yeah. And I told him if he didn't move them. With- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Then the next four to five hours, I was going straight to the barracks. Did, 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 did you talk to him about what he did or why he did it? I did. I yeah, did. What I did, did he say? Why, why oh, did he, he do it? He said he had no money to, to pay for bin bags or bins and all this type of stuff, but uh, he was driving a very nice car. Mm. So, uh, uh, I thought it was disgraceful, but uh, I got a letter sent to him anyway as well. Yeah. He did remove them, which, but you know, only for I went to his house, they were probably there, and we'd have to get. Now there's a guy there with, with mm. panda that's going round uh, picking up rubbish like that, and he's an absolute excellent guy. He's yeah, very, yeah. very good, uh, trying to keep the place right. But again, this thing of having to go to court, I think Michael is wrong. Yeah. If I, if I'm a good citizen, I'm trying to see someone dumping something, take the number of the card, find out, yeah, yeah. will you go to court? What lady wants to yeah. go to court or, or something like that? Well, you know? I don't think I'd fancy the idea of it myself, uh, but that's it. if oh. you bring the person guilty of doing this to court in order to prosecute them, and maybe that's uh, the answer, that uh, you knock on their door and say, look, would you go and pick up your rubbish, please? Yeah, well, that's right. That's what I did with this guy, you know what mm. I mean? Because yeah. the most beautiful setting down there at the Bridge of the Bind, you know, mm. and the council does the best to keep it right. But um, the, the people that's, that's packing the bins, uh, there was one guy in Navin, uh, and I don't mind names, was down in Cannon Row, and uh, he was coming up to another man's bins and putting his bags of rubbish in them when they'd be out at night, and this man got CCTV over his door. Mm-hmm. Right, it's on the main streets in Cannon Row there. And again, challenged him. Your man abused him, really. You know, he said, I was just, I was just stuck that night, but he wasn't. He was filling up his bin. So there has to be some action taken. But I think, I think, I think the law has to be changed because, you know, that, that said, same man that had CCTV outside, he would have had to go to court as well. Mm. And court is not, it's not for everyone and it's expensive to take time off and all like that. But, uh, you know, I, and you might be a bit afraid about giving evidence against somebody yeah. as well. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that's the would. biggest problem. That's the big. That's the biggest yeah. problem. But I, I think you know there's some great people there in Meath County Council trying to do cleaned up with guy Larry Campbell going around there, and he's absolutely brilliant. And the guys with the bins and that. But what they have to what they have to pick up there on the weekends and and businesses businesses now are mm. piling stuff out on the street. You know, like to have one bin or two bins. They should have a, a large bin and put the stuff into it, and that's it. What's the story with the street bins? Uh, where's the cutoff point in terms of how much rubbish you can put into it? Obviously, you don't put in your household yeah, yeah. waste, but I mean, sometimes you might empty out the car and it might seem a lot. Well, you know, I see, I see at our business there's three or four bins there, and I would mm. see many a person, but but it'd be just a bottle or a coffee cup or maybe a few bits of paper. I, I, there's people in the town with goes down with their bags of stuff there at night and yeah. puts them into the bins. And uh, that has to, but CCTV is the answer to everything. Like we have a company who run the CCTV in Navan, and uh, it's a kind of a closed shop. I had another group that wanted to come in and do uh, CCTV around the town and. Uh, they were doing broadband and all like that but this this crowd is a closed shop and I don't know whether they service them regularly some of them doesn't be working so I think there's, there's a lot in it but the data protection this data protection has we're going so PC that it, mm. it's unbelievable Neil, to get a conviction to get anyone to report anyone you know mm-hmm. and no one, wants, no, one, no one wants to take control of the data protection thing but the guards 
is they don't take control of it. It's the county manager, the chief executive, that want to take control of it. So everyone is sharing the responsibility as far as I'm concerned. All right, look, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for that, Fianna Fáil Councillor Tommy Riley. Let's go back uh, to more of uh, your comments, uh, Marie. Uh, a few more there. I have you? indeed, mm-hmm. Michael. Amory got in touch following your interview with Emma Coffey just in relation to rape and sexual assault cases. And she makes the point, in the cases of men who sadly are raped or sexually assaulted, Michael, would you ever see their underwear produced in court as evidence that they were effectively asking for it? Mm. It's just unacceptable. What a person wears should have nothing to do with anything, she Absolutely, says. Yep. Another mm. listener phoned in to say, to say, I'm aghast that this is actually going on in our courts. Uh, women should be able to wear a tongue and they shouldn't have to explain themselves does this mean that what you're wearing is is going to be used against you that should not be the case and should never be the case it's just appalling Mm. so moving on from that then Mike we just had a phone call in from John and Navin John says he can't believe what's happening in the country at the minute we have become almost almost become a lawless state he says we have people giving out about the shortage of housing and then you see the situation in Clondalkin where the social house is being built and it had to be shut down because of intimidation and vandalism Uh, the workers had to leave the site he feels that the sooner the army is brought into every town and village the better there's no other way of dealing with this type of problem that he can see Mm, yeah know where he's coming from that really was a heartbreaking story yeah just finally, Jim phoned in to say that he was watching the documentary on Sergeant Morris McCabe over the last two nights on RTE and he just wanted to say that he has the utmost respect and admiration for the sergeant and his wife to keep on fighting despite the attempt to bring him down. He says it was awful what went on and the documentary was very hard to watch but at least the good guy won in the end, that the truth came out in the end and that at least is something we can be proud of. Yeah, well, a remarkable man who defied the odds, to say the very least. Thanks for that, uh, Marie, and everybody who has been in touch with us uh, today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's talk about uh, this draft Brexit with withdrawal agreement with Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, this UK wide backstop uh, could lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom, according to the DUP. Do you think they're right? Good morning, Michael, and um, thanks for having me on. Um, the truth of the matter is that we haven't seen the full text, and neither have the DUP. It has to be said. What we're told has happened has been that an agreement has been reached on a technical level between the negotiators. So there's clearly no guarantee. That there will be that will result in political agreement. The, neither the EU Council or the British government have signed up as yes. We know but, uh, that as you government. understand this draft uh, as it's being reported. Do you believe it could lead to a breakup of the United Kingdom because it appears uh, that Northern Ireland would be treated differently? That there would be specific provisions for Northern Ireland. Well, it's quite clear from the very start. Anybody who is looking at this objectively, that if we wanted to protect the Irish economy and particularly the All-Ireland economy if we wanted to protect the Good Friday Agreement, well then there would have to be some particular and special arrangements put in place for the North. That doesn't um, result in necessarily a change in terms of the constitutional jurisdiction of the North and I'm saying that as somebody who 
strives to see exactly mm. that um, happening. But I think what we need to do is see the full text, um, analyse it. We as a party have consistently called um, for the agreement to protect Irish interests, our economy, the Good Friday Agreement. Crucially, the rights of citizens in the North. Last December, as we've discussed many times, a joint report by the British and EU negotiators was agreed in which it was stated quite clearly that there would be no hardening of the border in Ireland. The Taoiseach at that time assured us that this was a cast iron guarantee. You might remember he used the term bulletproof. So what we now need to make sure is that the withdrawal agreement (coughs) gives legal effect Mm. to that cast iron guarantee. But again, as you understand it, uh, because it's... uh big document uh, and very few people have seen it but as you understand it do you believe that in effect this could mean that Great Britain would leave the European Union and Northern Ireland would effectively remain in the EU? Not to the degree that I would like I have to say um, we knew that from the backstop um, agreement political agreement that was reached back last December and we said quite clearly that while it was um, the um, bottom line in terms of where we could move forward that it didn't go um, as far as we felt was necessary in order to protect Ireland um, entirely. So, for example, the rights of citizens weren't included, services weren't um, included alongside um, goods. Um, so there were a number of questions outstanding as even at the backstop of what Sinn Féin said in order to be constructive and pragmatic was that if this deal lived up to that then there was a potential that we could minimise the damage that would be done as a result of Brexit because the truth of the matter is that Brexit will cause damage to the Irish economy and to our um, political and social um, process. What we need to make sure is that that damage is minimised insofar as is possible. So there's two things that need to Mm. and will happen now over the coming days. Obviously everybody's going to have a view to this discussion document. What we need to make sure from an Irish point of view is that the document and protects Irish interests, that it's permanent in nature, that you know there's no such thing as a temporary backstop, then it stops being... Are a, you a worried backstop. that that could be the case? Because, again, we're talking in a vacuum and without seeing the text, uh, without this uh, being published uh, as yet, I suppose that sort of detail is still unclear to some degree. Yes, yeah, so what we know is what we've read in, in, in through the media reports, and there have been some... Um, some variation in terms of the emphasis that some media reports have put on various aspects of the deal. So what we're saying is we're going to look at this. We're going to try and um, assess whether or not it protects Ireland's interests insofar as we believe is possible at this stage. If that is the case, well then I suppose the ball then rests in the British government's court and the, um, and the British um, and Commons in terms of their their vote. If it's a situation whereby we, as Irish political representatives across the board, feel that this deal is sufficient to protect our interests and the interests of our citizens in the north um, and if the British government sign up to it then we'll have to try and work if either of those two things don't happen well then I think we're into the scenario where we will have to have a serious conversation in terms of the options that are available to us and then clearly one of those options is um, the people of the north being given a say as to whether or not they want to actually remain part of the European Union through the easiest avenue of achieving that which is through a referendum on Irish unity. So I would say to the likes of the DUP and others that if their interest is sincerely to protect the union as they see it, well then um, this is potentially the only game in town. But as I say, there's lots of questions for all of us to answer before we come to that point because if it's a, if it's a, a case in point that this agreement doesn't go so far as we need, 
well then clearly at an Irish level we will have serious questions to ask among ourselves that if it's a temporary backstop in relation to the north uh, we'll have these questions and is that the scenario that you're suggesting could lead to a border poll I'm suggesting if the agreement that has been reached between the British government and the EU isn't sufficient to protect Irish interests, our economy, the Good Friday Agreement, the mm. rights of citizens, or if the British government rejects this deal insofar as it does do all of those things in either one of those scenarios, well, then I do believe that we will be um, have, having to move um, the conversation around um, a united Ireland um, in a much more um, um, accelerated fashion than perhaps we would have envisaged. Okay. Uh, Are you at all concerned uh, that what is agreed by the negotiators uh, does not uh, include Northern Ireland remaining in the European Union unless or until a solution is found for the border? I think the words unless and, uh, and until or words to that effect must be included in any agreement that is agreed. A temporary backstop is not a temporary, is not a backstop at all. Any um, insurance policy that only covers you for half the year or for a specific period of time isn't an insurance policy worth having. And that's essentially what the backstop is. It's an insurance policy that we all hope Mm. won't be required because we hope that the final free trade agreement that's agreed between the EU and the British government is sufficient to allow seamless trade to happen. But as well as that, we need to make sure that there are particular protections put in place for the island of Ireland, particularly around the protection of the Good Friday Agreement and specifically in relation to the all-Ireland economy. There needs to be specific references and guarantees and those guarantees have to be permanent in nature. Brexit is going to be a permanent permanent or at least a very long-term move on the part of the British government. Any protections that are put in place also have to be as long-term and as permanent. Okay, and there's much focus on the British Cabinet meeting today, but of course the Irish Cabinet will meet and undoubtedly will get more detail on what is being proposed. And if there is not such a cast-iron guarantee in this draft agreement, should the Irish government look to suggesting that there wouldn't be a council summit this month or if there is, that they would veto uh, anything that would lead to uh, a Brexit on those terms? Well, the Taoiseach told us all last December that we had received, as a country, cast-iron guarantees, bulletproof protections, as he said. So I think there is an onus now on the Irish government to ensure that that language is reinforced in the, in, in the text of the final deal. So I don't want to come across as being overly cynical. Um, the truth of the matter is that we have a, um, a technical agreement on a negotiations level. There is no guarantees that there's going to be political agreement from, from either side in this equation, which is obviously the British government's um, position, but also the EU position. Now, we may know more this afternoon, because as well as the British cabinet meeting, EU um, ambassadors are also meeting in, in Brussels, and as you said, the Irish cabinet is meeting in Dublin. Uh, following all of those things, I hope that we will be in a position that we will have greater detail and I hope that very soon we will have the full text so that we can analyse it and then we can come to an informed judgement as to whether or not it is sufficient to protect Irish interests and in which case then we will um, quite clearly hope that the British government sign up to it and then we can move on to actually agreeing a final free trade agreement between the um, between the European Union and the um, and British government so that we can actually try and ensure that the damage that will be caused by Brexit and damage will be caused 
but that we can minimise that insofar as is possible. Okay, and in the information vacuum that we're in, uh, I think the assumption is uh, that this is a two-tier backstop uh, that Northern Ireland is expected to leave on different terms than the rest of the United Kingdom. And uh, I think the reaction from the DUP uh, and some of uh, the uh, very uh, prominent Brexiteers uh, would indicate that that is uh, the case. Uh, And if it is the case, uh, what then? Because uh, that doesn't mean that that's going to be the outcome of all of this. Uh, Mrs May has to get uh, the approval of her cabinet today. Ministers may do that, uh, but I'm not sure the expectation is that uh, the parliament will. Yeah, and let's remember that the DUP, they're an important voice in terms of northern political representation, but they're a minority voice. They don't represent the majority of people in the north who have consistently not only voted to remain in the original um, referendum, but have consistently restated in every piece of research and opinion poll that has been carried out since that that's their wish and that's their intention. And the truth of the matter is that if you want to protect the Northern as well um, as the rest of the Irish economy, if you want to protect the Good Friday Agreement, then specific and special circumstances need to be acknowledged and respected. And in order order to do that, then you need to put in place specific and special protections in order to protect all of those things. I think anybody who looks at this objectively recognises that the North of Ireland is a place of part um, from the rest of Mm. the British jurisdiction. And in order to put in place the type of measures required to minimise the damage that could potentially be caused by Brexit, well then those type of assurances and guarantees need to be put in place and they need to be put in place on a long-term and permanent basis. Okay, the DUP says it doesn't want to be in the deep end of this swimming pool, but uh, we'll find out uh, how it all pans out later in the day when there is more detail. But uh, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, talk about uh, the ongoing criminal gang feud in uh, Drogheda with local TD Sinn Féin's Melda Munster. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, There is uh, concern obviously that as bad as this has been already that it could escalate further. Well, that's the fear, isn't it? The fear that someone is actually going to get killed or some innocent passerby is going to get caught up in the crossfire. It's, It's the situation is now dire and it's it's frightening and it's dangerous. It's dangerous, in fact, and I raised it yesterday with the Taoiseach and the Minister for Justice and I was looking for um, extra resources that we badly need, desperately need, in fact, um, and the same resources that parts of Dublin and Limerick had gotten, you know, when, when there was a similar type drugs feud. Now, the Minister, has, his response was that... Um, he made reference to the the Gardaí, the cancelling the Garda leave, you know, and whilst that's that's to be welcome, but it's it's nowhere near um, sufficient to what we need. We need the extra resources. Um, is he saying he's going to cance, cancel Garda leave indefinitely? This needs to be a focused, a dedicated, focused response to this, you know, and we do need the extra resources in place if we're to tackle it because there is real naked fear out there and I know I've experienced it Um, uh, mothers have come to me and they've just um, I've never seen anything like it to be honest I mean they've uh, I know of at least three mothers that have put their sons on planes out of the country in the last month alone for their own safety and they're, they're, they're literally begging for help and there's homes being attacked and large sums of money demanded of parents. Um, and the fear is, 
you know, that um, the other thing is there's a lot of other incidents um, that go unreported purely because of the fear, you know, and they're very serious Mm. incidents. They're not as violent as what the, you know, the abduction, the kidnap we saw, we heard of on Sunday night, but they're not too far away from it either, where people are being terrorised in their own homes. Right. Uh, one of the papers uh, this morning is uh, suggesting uh, that there was €60,000 behind that particular incident. Uh, are you hearing uh, of money like that uh, in terms of people being paid to do damage to other people? Uh, and is that what you're referring to when you talk about these three boys leaving the town? No, it, the, no the, the parents, some of the parents were first forced to hand over large sums of money that was demanded of them. and These are drug debts, is it? Yes, yeah. Some of them did because of the fear, you know, of um, their homes being attacked and all of of that. But they're big, fat, round sums, you know, and parents, when they're put under that pressure, they'd no idea whether or not, you know, the son actually owed that sort of money. But what was happening in two of the cases that I spoke to, they, they were... Um, young chaps, you know, late teens, early 20s. And they'd been, um, they were taking drugs. No, you know, there's no, no, they were full stop like. But um, they were offered, and it all seems to be coke, but they were offered the coke. And then um, they were getting hooked on it, if you like. And then they were being offered by the dealers uh, more coke to sell to their friends. And then the friends weren't actually paying them for it. And then these youngsters came under severe pressure then to get the money. And they they realised then they were just way out of their depth. And some of them eventually broke down and told their parents what was happening. And told them that they were under threat and they said they were going to be dealt with if they didn't pay it. So that was the, you know, the extent of that. Like, um, what what ages are you talking about? You're talking about very late teens and early twenties. Mm. So there were youngsters that just got caught up in it. But I've heard of other instances where youngsters, like you said, there who owed money, were being told to carry out some of these deeds, and something had been knocked off their debt for doing it. So they have these youngsters by, you know by the hooks, the, you know, on their necks, like, you know, mm. and that's that's what's happening. And, of course, the main instigators, and that's what I'd said to the minister yesterday, like the five arrests at the weekend was to be welcomed, but the main instigators, the organisers, the main headbuck cats, if you like, are still not apprehended. And everybody, the dogs in the street know who they are. Mm. And the community, when I say fear, Mike, I'm, I've never, ever witnessed fear in parents like that before. I mean, some of them were just at breaking point, at breaking point. And there were incidents and some of them didn't go near the guards, just didn't, just the fear of even going to the guards. And then there was another instance which would really infuriated me, right? And it was a case of a family that was informed that their home would be, atta- be attacked. And they were told the particular night that it was going to be attacked. Now, the guardy were made aware of this threat and... Uh, they were told the particular night it was to happen. And sure enough, the home was attacked, but there wasn't a guard to be seen. So when you're saying to people, 
would you not go? You don't even have to make a statement. Just go and give them, you know, some of the information. You don't have to make a statement. You can understand people's fear because it's a naked fear and it's also the fear of no protection. They feel that the Gardaí will offer them no protection. Well, and I've hmm. I've witnessed that firsthand in that one particular case. Well, well what happened at that house? The house was attacked. There was a petrol bomb. The windows put in. The door literally ruined. Um, you know that th- that was the most they could do, but that's that's what was done. Like, and, and the, the the guards were told they were made aware of the threat. They were made aware of the 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 particular night to happen, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that mother was was full sure that the guards were going to be there waiting. Mm. There wasn't a guard to be seen, so you know until the guards actually. People have to have confidence that they're going to be protected. So calling for people to give information. And another thing in that particular case, up until yesterday, that particular particular mother didn't even receive a follow-up call from the guards following that incident. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, they're pretty serious accusations that you're making. Well, I raised them with the chief superintendent because I had a meeting with him nine days ago. It was last Monday week and it was on foot of those mothers telling me these stories and it was actually before all this kicked off you know the the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the escalation kicked off mm. and before, um, before it exploded because it's yeah, been go- before, going on for months now yeah really. of course yeah, it has yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been so, so, for years but what did he say well he had said he, he wasn't aware of the particular case he asked another guard to go out and get the file I said how terrifying it was for that family in the first instance and why was there not guardy there you know when they were told that that was going to happen on that particular night and I also said that nobody has ever made contact with that family since and he said that that would be followed up and that shouldn't have happened but that's you know that's not that's cold comfort Mm. to that family who did place their trust in the guards in the hope that they would be protected yeah you know, and you, you, you haven't heard any more from the superintendent yourself since. No, 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 no. no. That's but remarkable. It, yes, it is remarkable. And then you wonder why people have just no confidence in the fact that they, you know, that they'd be protected or they'd be afforded like, any protection we, whatsoever. We, what happened? Did the, did the family ring the guards? Did they go into the guard station? Did they say, uh, we've been told we're going to be attacked? Did they say, we're worried we're going to be killed? What, t- no, t- they actually, they told the guards that they, there was a threat made mm. on their home, that their home was going to be attacked unless they, they coughed up the money. Um, they said that the family hadn't got the money and they told them that it was on this particular night that they had been warned it was going to happen. So the Gardaí were fully aware of mm. the threat, fully aware of the night it was going to happen. And when the incident happened... There was no guards about the place. Uh, and the guards have been reaching out to people. They've been... Well, that's, that's, that's the thing. And look... They've been saying, I, come to us, tell us. Yes. We have a special unit, apparently. That's, that's the argument. That's the argument there. And then know. people come, they say, yeah. we, or we, we believe one of our, yeah. our, our children owes money, and we've been asked for it, we've been told if we don't pay it, they're going to attack our house, uh, yeah. please protect us, and they ignore it. Yeah. I mean, that's the accusation yeah. you're making well, this well, morning. That, well, that's, that's, that's what happened. That's right. what happened. Okay. That's exactly what happened. And as I said earlier, I have um, been told of other incidents, and very, very serious incidents. And those people that were the victims of those incidents, just they just 
point blank. Explain it to me. Why is this happening or why is it not happening? Why are the guards not doing their job if that's what well, firstly, is happening? Right. I mean, the argument has to be made at national level because the Guardi are seriously under-resourced. And this has been brewing, this has been going on for two or three years now and it's been building up all the time. And for a long time, it was the public perception that Guardi locally had turned a blind eye to the main drug dealers. Because they were using them as informants. That was the rumour. You don't know what truth is in that, but that, yeah, but that, that, that was the public That's a, that's a very strong yeah. rumour that Gardaí mm. didn't arrest or bust the mm. main drug dealers because the main drug dealers were telling them the names of the young that they were selling in th- mm-hmm. the drugs to. Then the guards went out and busted the young and let whoever it was, the big shots, continue on without any fear at all. Well, that's, that's the thing. The main instigators are still not apprehended. And everybody knows who they are and everybody. But this has been going on, say, over the last three years. It hasn't just happened. And families were intimidated. So the argument you're you're making this morning is Mm. that the guards are responsible for creating this situation. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's a real and justified naked fear Okay. among people. But they're part the, the of the are not that, affording them the protection that, 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 that they need. Yeah, but in, in, in at or, the same time, in, they're in asking or, people to come forward with information. But the real fear is there that, well, I can't, because if I do, you're not going to offer me any protection. But it, but, I'm not going to be yeah. safe. But I mean, the, so. the, 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 the scenario you're painting is that in order to have so many arrests, they're ignoring the problem and they're going out and arresting young fellows who have small amounts of drugs rather than the people who are supplying it to them. Well, that's, 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 that's what's out there. You know, that's what people feel. That, uh, and, and that's, I mean, it's, it's And that's fear. led to this big gangland thing that is now leading to a situation where somebody could be killed. Well, what I would say is, as I said to you there a moment ago, it has been going on on a small scale. Not on a small scale, but there has been intimidation of families over the years by these two drug gangs. Right. Mm, mm. And it went literally, you know, just w- went o- over the radar, if you like. It wasn't, it wasn't nipped in the bud. It wasn't tackled. It wasn't, yeah. it was ignored, basically. And you'll see it in but the graffiti. Now, you'll see it in graffiti around the town where people are, are, are crying out for help, suggesting yes. that people are selling drugs by writing their names on walls. Yes, yes. But the reason this has kicked off and the only reason it's now in the, the you know, the national domain, if you like, with mm. the media, is because of a feud between the two gangs. But when people were looking for help over the years, that help wasn't forthcoming. There was no one ever lifted. The main reason is the, the, the feud has kicked off now, you know, with such intensity. That's the only reason it's brought. And if that's, if that's the reason, then that's a good reason that it's been brought, but it needs mm. to be tackled. And until we get the extra resources to do it, it's not going to be solved. Okay. Well, but I've never, ever experienced fear like it in people. And it's wrong and it's horrible. And people shouldn't have to live in that fear. And Drahada, we've never seen lawlessness of this nature before. And it has to be stamped out. And even I would say of the, the senior guard of management in the division, they have to come out publicly. I mean, I can do it. I mm. had a bit of a ding dong with the minister yesterday because his response was as dismissive mm. as the last time. When I raised the last time about yeah. one community van between two large towns in this county and then also the fact that we only had two patrol cars in Drogheda, mm. he dismissed it. You don't expect the local guards to come out and say we've been protecting drug dealers because, no, they've, been given they the, because they've been giving us the names of Yonflis that they've been supplying to. No, they need to come out publicly and say to the, the minister and the Garda commissioner 
if we are to tackle this and stamp it out before it escalates any further, we need the extra resources. They're not doing anything wrong in saying that. They're Mm. just being honest and saying we need the resources, the same resources that Dublin and Limerick got in order to stamp this out. But staying quiet and trying to manage with minimal resources is not going to solve it. And that's what's been happening. Okay. And they need to do that. And there's an onus on them because they're the protectors of the public and they need to do that. Very and serious then, questions, Imelda. I have to yeah, leave it there for the moment. Yeah, it's desperate. Yeah, it's yeah. desperate. And, and mm-hmm. people, you know, it's mothers pleading for help. And, you know, it's, it's a situation where the whole community is living in fear. My husband, for example, just went up the shop at the top of the street the other night and he overheard um, there was a, a, a guard a guard there and he overheard the 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 person, um, you know, at the till saying it's been very, very quiet the last couple of nights. People are actually afraid to go out. There wasn't a child in one estate in the town. There wasn't a child out trick-or-treating on Halloween night. Now, you try and keep a child in on Halloween night. That's a town that's under siege. Yeah, Yeah, that's the fear in parents. Okay. it's wrong and it needs to be tackled. I have to leave it it out. All right, listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD and Melda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Social Justice Ireland held its annual policy conference in Crow Park yesterday and uh, suggested a programme for government for the next government. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice, on the line with us now. And uh, very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, your, focus, always, uh, your focus, as has been the case uh, for many years now, on the society we build rather than the economy. Absolutely. I think it's very important that we have recognised a mistake we've been making for more than a century. We're not alone in this. Most countries in the world make the same mistake, have made the same mistake. And it is that the the, the belief that if we grow the economy, everything else will follow, fall into place, trickle down, if you like. And the reality is, of course, that that doesn't actually work. We have been very, very effective in Ireland at uh, growing the economy. Uh, Even after the crash, we now have uh, one of the richest uh, economies in the world, one of the fastest growing economies in the world, no matter how you count it. And there's arguments about how you do that. But no matter how you do it, Mm. uh, we have a very fast growing economy. And we have other things like we've falling unemployment and rising employment. There's more people with jobs uh, than uh, has ever been the case before. And a lot of growing consumer demand and a lot of migrants or former immigrants coming back and so on. So a lot of very positive things happening there. But the other side of it is then you have to say, okay, uh, there's another Ireland and there's 780,000 people at risk of poverty. A quarter of a million of those are children. 100,000 people at risk of poverty actually have a job, but the job doesn't protect them from poverty. They're still there. We have homelessness. We have social housing problems in rural Ireland. We have this scandal of half a million households without quality broadband. And uh, people are still being told that, you know, we should be able to work from home and so on. But if you don't have quality broadband, you can't, not not only can you not work from home, but people can't run the basic basics of a modern business from home. But given those challenges, people scoff at the idea that this is a wealthy country, let alone one of the richest countries in the world. And they're right on that, you see. If you measure wealth as being economic growth only or wealth uh, in the sense of the size of the economy, we're doing extremely well. But most people in Ireland know that uh, we're not doing all that well, that we're doing, we're not doing so badly, no, but uh, we're doing better than we were doing 10 years ago after the crash. But the bottom line in it is that there's a huge amount of division and that there has been a complete failure 
to think in terms of developing the society as well as the economy and doing it simultaneously. And that's our big argument because we're saying like not alone is this just the thought process and the narrative, but it has infested programs for government as well. So that in, in reality, programs for government are driven by the idea that if we grow the economy, everything else will fall into place. And that simply is not true. And what needs to be done is we need to think in terms of a, a, a range of areas that are developed simultaneously. And this is the critical issue that they have to be done. So we, we put up five different areas that we think need to be developed simultaneously in the next programme for government to the 33rd doll, maybe into the 34th doll, because a lot of the issues that we are highlighting are not going to be resolved or solved in five years. Some of them can, but we can't do them all in five years, so we have to make choices. But most of them would be the responsibility of the finance minister, would they not, uh, which brings back focus to the economy? Not really. Uh, some of them would be like, for example, just taxation, like to, to collect enough taxes so that we can actually provide the services and infrastructure. But um, but uh, the just taxation issue would be very much the Minister for Finance. And then having a vibrant economy would also uh, be part, at least, of the, the, the Minister for Finance would be the main one of the main, if not the main minister there. But as well as developing a, 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 a program for government, developing a vibrant economy and just taxation, we also need to put at the centre of that government decent services and infrastructure because we have a serious problem there. We need to put mm. good governance at the centre because we have huge governance issues across semi-states and local authorities and so on. And thirdly, uh, and finally maybe, uh, sustainability because we need to put policies in place that are sustainable in, for not just for our time, but for our, the next generation and coming generations. So five basic things that, that a programme for government should look at. Developing a vibrant economy, decent services and infrastructure, just taxation, good governance and sustainability. And those five, what we did was we showed how they could be, each of those could be developed and how they could be done simultaneously. And choices will then have to be made so that you don't wind up in a situation um, where, where uh, people are, uh, don't trust that the issues that are of concern to them will be dealt with in due course. And they certainly will not have to depend on the idea that in some way or other what we need to do is grow the economy even more than it's growing at the moment so that we have these uh, very, very vast amounts of wealth coming into the country. But in actual fact, very small numbers of people getting access to that. And meanwhile, loads of people have precarious jobs and they're they're, they're paying, they're in low pay, uh, even if 100,000 of them actually have a job, but they're, they're in poverty. And there's no, uh, there's a very poor uh, childcare available, and a, ver- a variety of different things that you could spell out that your listeners are well aware of, and they can make their own list of this, and could be perfectly valid. So what we're saying is, there needs to be a kind of an integrated approach. We call it a, 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 a the program we, that we spelt out was towards well-being for all, and the idea being that well-being is about more than than the economy. It's about uh, whether you're doing, uh, whether you can participate in the society, whether the society you're in is sustainable, you're confident about that, whether you have decent services and infrastructure, uh, whether you have good health care and good education and good public transport. These are the kinds of things that matter to people and that make a difference to the well-being of people. Mm. And what we're now going to do is uh, we have we have this spelled out in some detail. It'll be on our website in the next couple of days. And we're going to uh, bring it to every um, uh, political party in Leinster House. 
and yeah. we're going to basically say, here's what we think should be in there. We're not saying uh, it's perfect, and we're not saying it's the only ver- uh, thing that should be there, but we are saying here's a range of things that should be done um, that we think uh, could be done within the kind of resources that are there, and not alone that, but they could be done uh, in an integrated mm-hmm. manner uh, simultaneously, and that would, in effect, promote the well-being of everybody. And if we could do that over a five or ten year period, then we'd be in a new space where we'd be actually developing programs on the scale required to tackle social housing, for example. Okay. To, ta- to tackle the climate problem that we have, for example. like And, and a- a- achieving those goals, uh, I suppose. I, I'm, I, I'm over time today, Sean. I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed for your time and for joining us as always. Father Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.